Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. This week, we're continuing our conversation with author Allison Huntington Chase, author of Bizarre Brooklyn, Stories of the Tragic, Macabre, and Ghostly, newly published by the History Press. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Welcome back, Allison, to Crime Capsule, where we have just crawled out of the closet and taken the blanket off of our head and looked around to see whether uh, the coast was clear. It looks like it is. We're delighted to have you back. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the next ghostly case, we've been on this whirlwind tour of Brooklyn and its haunted landmarks and its paranormal sites. Let's take a quick break at a rest stop for a second. And I wanted to ask you about your methods. So as I was reading your account, it's clear that you treat these cases much more as an historian as a, and a researcher than as a sort of paranormal investigator who goes out into the field with all sorts of fancy gadgets and, you know, the the readings and the, you know, let's get our thermal sensors and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, we understand that in paranormal studies, there's room for all approaches and that, you know, they're all comers are welcome. But it was just interesting to me that you leaned heavily more towards the sort of the documentation side of things than anything else. Can you tell us just a little bit about your particular research methods? When I was creating my tour, I did the bulk of research for that. And I revisited when I was writing the book. And a lot of the sources were simply New York City history books. Uh, there's one in particular that was written in the late 1800s. So you get a closer account of those previous hauntings um, as opposed to a hundred years later, them talking about it. Uh, Brooklyn Daily Eagle, New York Times, they've all been incredibly helpful. People's um, articles online, there's a lot of ghost stories. And the thing is, you want to have the most consistent version of that story. You know, some people um, jazz up a certain tale, play it down. So it's really like comparing what's the most consistent story that there is with research and backing it up, making sure there's multiple different discussions on the same thing. If it's a one-off story, it's usually not something I focus on because that's more of a hearsay thing. So anything that's documented, I take seriously. The other, um, Types of hauntings, like you were saying, for instance, with McCarran Park Pool, a lot of information there was on those supposed ghost hunts. So I'll mention that an orb was found or a drop in temperature was found in a ghost hunt, but it's really like a person died in this year and then it's been claimed to be haunted since in this particular part of the pool. So I really want to make it specific, but not too much into the fantasy world. I don't want the reader to question if this is just a, a tale or a an event that actually happened. So I definitely try to stick to the events and then you can create your own opinion of if you believe that that place is haunted due to the circumstances that you've just learned. You know, it obviously at the end of the day, you read it to be entertained, but 
the facts are facts. So you'll walk away knowing more about undeniable uh, events that happened and the reason why it is spooky, whether it's a ghost or not. You know, if you're in a graveyard, that's spooky. Yeah. Now, I was curious because you mentioned last week, specifically with respect to graveyards that have been lost uh, to history and so forth, we are making new discoveries. And you mentioned some maps that had come into public awareness that had sort of revealed uh, certain locations to us and diaries that have also opened up aspects of historical inquiry that had maybe been closed off previously. Were there any cases as you were writing this book that you really felt like, okay, here is a legitimate discovery and here is something that we can look at with fresh eyes because we have fresh sources now to do so. There's two great examples of this uh, in the book. So there's a bar called Barcade in Williamsburg. It started here. Now it's a national um, chain. It's a a bar filled with arcade games, hence the name. Uh, And according to a recently found map from 1849, it's located in a former... uh, church graveyard that held up to 30,000 dead bodies. They were relocated to Cypress Hill Cemetery, but when I say relocated, they took probably a couple bodies, called it a day, and oh <laughs> just... <laughs> they didn't get them all. Care. Exactly. So um, the majority, I say, uh, I'd say remained behind. When asked if it was haunted, the owner, Paul Kermizian, says that the only ghosts he's seen are in the Miss Pac-Man games, but... Terrible. Terrible. I know. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently just strange haunted happenings go on there. But a better example of hidden cemeteries and maps is the Brooklyn Naval Cemetery, which dates back to, um, I believe, 1831. So this held up to 2,000 bodies of the various people who passed away in the Brooklyn Naval um, Hospital. They were buried there, and the cemetery was used up until 1910. And then those bodies supposedly were removed to Cypress Hill as well. Then uh, it laid abandoned for about 90 years. Then in um, 1997... Uh, they went digging around because, again, anytime there's vacant land, we just want to put something on top of it. Right. So when they began to dig around, they came across more human remains and they realized that uh, there were a lot of bodies that were left behind. So through years and years of research and going through records, uh, they were able to identify a lot of the bodies and the origins Um, Of course, not every single Mm -hmm. skeleton or bone was accounted for, but um, they decided instead of building over to leave the bodies where they were, and they created this cemetery that's designed to be a nature pollination habitat area. So if you pass by Mm. it, it looks kind of like an overgrown grassy park, but it's purposely designed that way. There's boards you can walk on. A lot of people roller skate on them. But it's supposed to be a reflective place that you can go and really just um, sit with your thoughts. So, again, unless you really know what it is, it just looks like a park, but it is an active cemetery. And those researchers wouldn't have even bothered to look things up until we come across those bones. Because it's virtually forgotten after um, time. So... 
unfortunately we make these discoveries too late, but I think with any deceased person or even ghosts, just being acknowledged that they were there and they existed Mm -hmm. is um, important to do. Far preferable than leaving them angry and vengeful and restless and prone to come after you with whatever implement uh, they might have at their spectral um, possession. Now, we'll come back to graveyards in a little bit because you you have some just killer examples in there. Please pardon my... Terrible mistake there. Um, but before we get to graveyards, I wanted to to jump back on your trolley, okay? And I want to just keep kind of working our way around the borough a little bit. And it would not be a visit to Brooklyn without a stop at Coney Island, right? We just absolutely have to go to Coney Island and, you know, eat the junk food and walk along the boardwalk and ride the rickety rides and take our lives in our own hands and hang out with the carnies and do all the things that we're supposed to do. Okay, like we got to go. We got to go. What's interesting about your account is we can participate in the carny romance, you know, of it all. And we should, you know, we absolutely should. It is just glorious. There's an underlying story here, which maybe a lot of visitors to Coney Island or a lot of even regular New Yorkers may not necessarily know, which is this very moving account of uh, the incubated babies that were there. And this was totally news uh, to me. And I I imagine that for many of uh, your readers and for many of our listeners, this is going to kind of come out of nowhere as like, oh my goodness, this actually happened here. And your answer is, uh, yeah. So how did you discover this particular story and what what was going on? So incubators, they were um, around. It wasn't invented in Coney Island, but they weren't used in hospitals. They didn't think that they actually had um, enough of a purpose. So when premature babies were born, um, it was very difficult to keep them alive. Now, over in Coney Island, um, they had purchased dozens of them because what you learn in the book is that People were constantly being exploited for um, anything that was different. It could be extra limbs. uh, It could be a bearded lady, um, tiny people. uh, Mm -hmm. So they thought that uh, preemie babies would draw in a crowd and they wanted to get them there. Now, the trade-off was that they would be able to use these incubators as long as they were on display. So Mm -hmm. even though it's kind of sick, that these tiny struggling babies, you could buy a ticket to gawk at them. It ended up saving most of their lives because they were still able to get that medical help. So it's interesting. And while people were constantly being exploited in Coney Island, it's not like they were suffering because it gave them work. And when all these sideshows and quote unquote freak shows came out of fashion because people felt bad for these performers, it actually put them out of work and they struggled to find another job which would fit their circumstances. So while there's definitely, definitely a dark side to Coney Island, they did provide a living for many people. Hmm. You know, it's funny you mentioned that that sort of tension between, you know, finding a home for performers who would not necessarily find one else elsewhere. And that kind of thin line between employment and exploitation 
in that mm-hmm. context. I, I was very moved uh, some years ago, I think it was 2016, when the Times announced the closure of the circus, right? It was ending, absolutely ending. This is a chapter in American history. And I was so moved by that, that I sort of, pardon the metaphor, threw my girlfriend at the time in the car and we drove to Cincinnati where she's from. And we caught the circus on its return journey to New York because, you know, you realize that this actually is the end of an era. And the the Times articles at the time about, you know, where is the fire eater going to go? Where is the Mongolian strongman going to go? Where are these folks going to find work here? And it really threw, you know, 130 years of performance history into such a stark light when it became apparent that the, the enterprise could could just no longer continue, you know, and it began in New York and it ended in New York and it just came full circle. And I felt so grateful to be able to just kind of drop everything and go and see the circus before you could not see it anymore, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's, it's funny because it's got such a dark history, especially with P.T. Barnum, who's not a good guy. Right. It started off as like an oddities exhibit, not an honest one either. He would, um, you know, for like the world's largest man, he would be stuffed with, you know, extra layers. He even had a woman he claimed was George Washington's wet nurse that was still alive and you could pay to see her, you know, absurd things like that. But um, if you go to Coney Island today, you'll still see people who are like tattooed to look like lizards and have that slice in their tongue. You know what I'm talking about? You'll still be able to see interesting people but they mostly, you know, work in the solo fields. You just give them a couple of dollars. Have you heard of the Mermaid Parade? I don't think that I have. So once a year, uh, first of all, Coney Island is very, very, very far from the big city part of Brooklyn. I'm, oh, yeah. No, you. I mean, you. if you want to go there, you have to mean it, right? I mean, you have to be oh, very yeah. intentional about getting to Coney Island. Yeah. It's definitely a trip. So... The one time of year that everyone really rallies together and has the energy to go is every summer there's a mermaid parade. You dress up as obviously mermaids, but people go Mm. all out. It's kind of like kind of like Mardi Gras. So Mm -hmm. it's this long line. There's usually a couple like C-list celebrities who are, you know, hosting it or whatever. Nice. Um, I actually haven't gone because. It always lands on a day that I'm either not here or already have plans. Oh, no. Again, I don't mean to poo-poo on it, but it's pretty gnarly, pretty run down. The uh, rides, they hurt. You ride them, those wooden roller coasters, and your back hurts for a week. It's all part of the experience. (laughs) Exactly. It definitely is not what it once was, which is funny because it started off as a, a rich person's retreat. But when it became more accessible to the public, it quickly um, turned into this Hmm. not as glamorous type of uh, destination. About a million people came to the beach each day in the summertime. I mean, you couldn't pay me to swim in that water now. There's like syringes, trash. It's yeah, gross. Yeah, it's uh, definitely one of those things you have to go to at least once to say you've been. It is what it is. I know people who live in Coney Island and work in Manhattan and make that trip twice a day. I don't know how they do it. Rent's a lot cheaper there. And they you actually can get a nice place, but the trade-off is that travel time. You do write in your book that compared to some of the other locations in Brooklyn, Coney Island, it is mildly haunted, right? I mean, it's sort of like 
I don't mean to sound kind of crude here, but sort of the the oddities are still among us, right? And so, like the there are only a few documented ghosts or hauntings um, that have sort of persisted from previous decades. There's a little bit more of an imbalance there, which I found kind of amusing in your in your analysis of it. You mentioned that there's one venue called Oriental Manor, which is sort of an event space that has maybe a little presence there where it's kind of 50-50. Yeah, that is um, kind of notoriously haunted. When you say the name, people will always be like, oh yeah, it's haunted. There's a ghost. It's funny because a lot of places, event halls are often haunted. And it's probably because so many people are in and out of it that there's just a lot of chaos and ghosts love chaos. Supposedly a man appears in the window. It's haunted by him. And remember how we were saying earlier, I think in the last podcast that when things go wrong, people blame it on ghosts. Oh yeah. A big wedding or event. Caterers can mess up sometimes and it's an easy act to be sure. like, no, a ghost dropped those, which is fine. I, I love that excuse. But there's way more haunted places. I think what you said is really accurate where it's it's still so crazy it's hard to separate the two Mm -hmm. but there was this elephant hotel that burned down and it was it was a brothel at the time and they said if you could see the elephant then you were in the wrong part of coney island the really seedy bowery brooklyn bowery which what they called it's always been you know a sketchy place you know a lot of people have died there with their violence drugs. And it's not, you know, it's not a glamorous destination. It's crazy because like part of you thinks it's such a rich history. And then part of you thinks it's such a sad history. So many things have been invented there, like frozen custard and hot dogs. But then you have the freak shows, which consisted of a tiny people village community. I think you were about this in the mm-hmm. book. It's, um, mm-hmm. they were exploiting little people They had their own parliament, fire station. It was crazy. So it was a community of little people that you could just like watch living their daily lives in this two-scale sized town. One of the worst things they did in Coney Island, though, was human zoos. They brought people from the Congo, Philippines, and people would watch them in cages like as if they were animals and gawk at their tribal gear, which of course they made sure that they were looking as native as possible. Really, it was awful. People would pet them. Like it was horrible. They treated them like animals. Obviously that, you know, died out, thankfully. But, Very um, Victorian sort of fin de siècle approach to yeah. anthropology, which yeah, thankfully has has itself gone the way of the dodo. You know, let's go back inland a little bit because there's a there's another location here on on your list of landmarks which which really struck me uh, in part because it is like Coney Island such an institution, right? I've got a close friend um, here in New Orleans who is a Brooklyn native and he's writing a memoir of his upbringing in Brooklyn in the 60s and 70s and he too like so many is a graduate of Erasmus Hall and yet Joel has never once uh, mentioned to me in our many discussions about Brooklyn in those days the sighting of the boy in the basement because you know that one seems like it would have stuck out a little bit, <laughs> at least yeah. in local lore, right? So yeah. what's going on at Erasmus Hall in the basement 
that the rest of the world needs to know about. <laughs> oh my gosh. So this is one of the scariest locations, in my opinion. The high school was built, it's called the mother of high schools because it was one mm-hmm. of the first. Uh, it was built uh, hundreds of years ago by the Quaker community. And it only had a handful of students and then they eventually allowed women in uh, and it grew. But it's funny because that original structure from the 1700s is in the middle of Flatbush, Brooklyn, and it sticks out like a sore thumb. And um, obviously other buildings were built as part of the campus. Uh, They were trying to look like Cambridge and Oxford, which again, Mm -hmm. does not go with the rest of the ambiance of the neighborhood. It's a super dangerous school in sense of safety and violence. And it's had that reputation for decades and decades. Um, So Michael Rappaport, the actor, went there and he claims that he had a run in with a ghost in the basement. So he and his friend were um, sentenced to detention one day and their Mm. their punishment was they had to clean this room in the basement that had these uh, desks piled up of dust. It, you know, they probably didn't even need to clean. No one had been in there in forever. They just needed to give them something to do. So they sure. gave them the uh, keys for the padlock, which they obviously unlocked, kept in their pocket, and the door slammed shut. They couldn't open it, and suddenly all the desks started to fall down, and through the dust they could see this young boy grinning. So, of course, they freaked out in ran away once they were able to get the door unlocked again. So there's a show called Celebrity Psychics with Kim Russo. Have you seen it? I have not, but it sounds completely credible from the get-go. I love this show. So it's a spin-off <laughs> of Celebrity Ghost Stories. Again, phenomenal. Um, so she goes to the locations with the people um, from Celebrity Ghost Stories, and she investigates through um, her work as a medium, what has taken place there. So Michael Rappaport brought her to the basement and she claims it's the spirit of a little boy who was murdered there Mm -hmm. um, like a hundred years prior. Okay, so a couple young people died in this building. He was pushed and hit his head, which eventually he passed away from, I believe, either that night or the next day. And she mm-hmm. said, oh, he showed himself to you because he was also a little troublemaker and wanted to relate or something. I don't know. Convenient. I know, right? Then there was another little ghost boy in the gym. But I mean, kids have still been unfortunately murdered in uh, this school. Uh, years ago, boys got in a fight over a basketball game and somebody mm-hmm. was stabbed to death with scissors. It's not the happiest of places, but... So many famous people have graduated from it. We're talking Barbara Streisand, Barry Manilow, mm-hmm. one of the Three Stooges, some other randos. But uh, yeah, it's a very, very famous high school, but it still has just a terrible reputation. I wanted to ask because, I mean, unlike, say, Melrose Hall, which we discussed last week, which conveniently no longer exists so therefore no investigations of secret chambers and hidden princesses and you know ghostly you know murderers and so forth uh, can be undertaken you know here we have a building which is still in use right um and a school which is still 
functioning. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and presumably a basement room that Michael Rappaport, uh, yeah. you know, had this, had this vision in, in which, uh, celebrity psychics aside day in, day out, month in, month out. I mean, you would have, it's a very high traffic area, right? I mean, it's Absolutely. extremely high traffic area. And so I was just curious if say, number one, there is common knowledge at the high school about this particular entity, the supposed mm-hmm. entity, right? Um, or, you know, whether in, anyone has undertaken kind of a more systematic examination of that building or tried to learn, you know, through the records, right? Like the historical documentation, who this, uh, you know, young boy was, because here there's more of an opportunity, right? Compared to some of your other cases. Mm-hmm. And we actually found information. When I say we, I mean myself, I don't know why I keep saying we. I found um, an article about him in the New York Times. So mm-hmm. he is documented. There was a boy who did die the same way Kim Russo was talking about it. Maybe she read the same mm-hmm. article. I don't know. It's also, have you ever, you know, the saying, consider the source. If Michael Rappaport says it, I kind of believe him because he's a no BS type of guy. But um, <laughs> yeah, a lot of these deaths were researched via news articles. So mm-hmm. we know they existed. We know they died. Do they haunt the place? It depends on who you ask. If, if you've experienced it yourself. But like you said, it's so congested that and teenagers today, I don't think they're ghost hunting as much as they used to. So I I don't think anyone actually takes the time to investigate. And it's not like I can walk inside the high school and investigate myself. You kind of have to be a student if you're inside. So, so there is a lot of hearsay, but we also have definitive facts, which we use in the book. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I want to end this tour somewhat paradoxically at the beginning, if we are going to study the restless dead, we can't not visit graveyards. <laughs> um, you were speaking earlier about uh, the ones that were found um, from Revolutionary War era, and you have written about certain mass graves uh, that were discovered from that time period, which we just didn't know exactly where they were, but then they came to light. You write, interestingly, in the book that New York has 
a lot of these, uh, more more than we thought, actually, oh, yeah. uh, partly due to loss of records, loss of historical memory, and then they were discovered, you know, years later. Um, and I, I was curious, I mean, maybe you could start with the Battle of Brooklyn uh, near the old stone house in Prospect Park. I mean, this is this is an interesting one because the battle itself was very consequential in the early days mm-hmm. of the Revolutionary War. Yeah. But then there is this kind of historical, this loss of historical memory about its actual site. So can you trace that for us? How something that was so monumental in those days, you know, the grand scheme of things, not too long ago, right? Right. Then is immediately just sort of lost its exact location and and the, the restless dead of that graveyard are forgotten. Their location is forgotten. How did that happen? The old stone house is a 1699 Dutch stone farmhouse, typical of the area at the time. And it was used to um, house the Continental Army headquarters by uh, George Mm -hmm. Washington. Now, the original stone house was destroyed. And during the New Deal in, I believe, like 1935, uh, Robert Moses uh, made a replica of it. Now, that's Mm -hmm. located uh, in the park named after George Washington, but it Mm -hmm. stood next to where the Staples is today. We couldn't figure out the exact location where the old Mm -hmm. stone house was. It was somewhere along those two block radius. Mm -hmm. But um, we know that the reason why they were buried next to it is because the British dug a big ditch and just tossed the bodies in it. Now, these soldiers are referred to as the Maryland 400. They came over to help fight this battle. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the very first battle of the Revolutionary War. Yeah. So it's referred to as the Battle of Brooklyn, Battle of New York, or Battle of Long Island. It's all the same thing. Uh, we didn't have an actual army. We had volunteers, and a lot of them ran away because it was scary. We didn't know what we were doing, and disease was rampant. So we caught in our basically last 400 soldiers who were willing to participate in this battle, and... We lost almost immediately, of course. We were up against the super army of the world at the time. Mm-hmm. But if it weren't for these 400 soldiers, America would not exist because they were able to distract the British while George Washington fled back to Manhattan via canoe on the East River and continued the war efforts. So it's literally because of those 400 soldiers currently underneath Staples that um, – mm-hmm. We don't have British accents. It's thanks, guys. Uh, it's a very patriotic staples now. What does the corporate presence there say about their location on top of this graveyard now that it's been discovered? Is there any attempt to kind of reclaim that for purposes of American history, or is that a moot point? It's a moot point because you know they're not going to knock down the staples now or admit that they built it on top. So instead we've created monuments in honor of those soldiers throughout Brooklyn. I don't know if I would classify this under um, an unmarked grave, but uh, Navy Yard used to be called Wallabout Bay. And that's where they um, had the prison ships from the British, most notorious of which was called the Jersey. And daily they would just toss dead bodies over uh, the ship into the water and their bones would continuously wash ashore for years. I consider that more of an unmarked grave. Having said that, those bones were collected and put into a monument, which is in Fort Greenbark today. So even though it wasn't the location of the initial findings, it still marks that moment in history and houses those bones and 
remains that were washed ashore. And all of them refused to sign with the British their uh, loyalty to King George. So they really, really died for the cause. And admirable, I mean, the conditions were atrocious. It's really cool to see people who really uh, stuck to their guns, no pun intended, and um, fought for something they believed in. Yeah, and your efforts in this particular volume to bring those spaces to light, I mean, could not be more welcome because it is so easy to walk around New York or any major urban center, you know, today with with only the consciousness of what is kind of immediately in front of you and to not absolutely recognize what is, you know, buried right beneath uh, your feet. Now, the last cemetery uh, that I'd like to visit on the tour, and this will be uh, the end of, of our tour across Brooklyn, is yet another cemetery that was not fully deconsecrated. Uh, you know, you, you, so often in your book, you have these cases of, you know, you have a grave site and then somebody comes along and they decide to plonk something down on top of it, but then they don't get all the bodies out. And you just think, you know, guys, are you setting yourself up for failure deliberately, you know? <laughs> so the most Holy Trinity Church in Williamsburg, I mean, you know, an 1880s building and look, it, it's very simple. When the dogs start freaking out in modern day, right, uh, sort of investigations, like, listen to the dogs, people, like, they know what's going on. (laughs) It's funny you say that because I was afraid of the dark until I was 25. This is true. I slept with Mm -hmm. the light on. And then I got um, a dog, which I also had a fear of dogs, but no longer. I, I was like, well, if there's a ghost, she'll alert me. So uh, she was my little ghost ghost alarm dog. She's never alerted me, so I've been very lucky. Mm-hmm. I know ghosts here. But Most Holy Trinity Church, it was written about in um, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. It's a beautiful establishment. They have these wonderful stained glass windows, which mm-hmm. brings us into our story. Uh, there was a man in the 1800s named George Steltz. Mm-hmm. He was a bell ringer in the church and an avid member he he purchased a stained glass window to give the church and spent most of his days there now one day he walked in uh and discovered two men trying to steal from the church's poor box Mm. and they bludgeoned him to death Mm. people claim that since then he's been haunting the church you can see a bloody handprint sometimes on the stained glass window which has his mm. name on it mm. the bell rings by itself people have come up with different tales of why he still haunts the place they said that until the men who killed him are brought to justice that he'll continue to haunt what's ironic is one of the men did end up getting arrested for a separate murder. Oh, interesting. Now, uh, the church's original um, pastor died in his room upstairs and supposedly haunts it, so nobody will live there, but they will offer it to guests staying overnight, Okay. unbeknownst to them. The stair leading down to the kitchen is where dogs stare in a trance and bark and won't go up. Hmm. Again, telltale sign. And... Uh, like we heard uh, in the Barcade Cemetery, they also had their own, which people believed the bodies that weren't treated with respect still walk mm-hmm. the grounds. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason for all of 
these unmarked graves in Brooklyn is because we had more churches than any other place in Manhattan or the Bronx, all of New York City. And with that came their own graveyards because until really Greenwood Cemetery was created, you were buried specifically at the church. Now, Mm -hmm. after a while, you ran out of room. They tried to be creative and bury people on top of each other, share a, a, a tomb. Yeah, you create mausolea for whole families, of course, yeah. right. And they got overused. And not only that, disease was starting to spread from them because they were not six feet below ground. When it rained, it would literally like bring up corpses. It was disgusting, uh, which again was the main reason why Greenwood Cemetery was created. And that served for many reasons, Greenwood Cemetery. It was the first manicured land in all of New York City. So essentially it served as one of the first parks. Mm -hmm. And it was the second most visited area in all of New York State, the first one being Niagara Falls. And people wouldn't necessarily go to the graveyard to visit loved ones, but have a picnic, relax. People sold their arts and um, like paintings, poems, whatever. And it became a very prestigious place to be buried. Now, at this time, Brooklyn was a second tier city, as uh, people referred to it as. And it was a trek to get over there. You had to go ferry before the Brooklyn Bridge. The reason why it became so prestigious was because, uh, you know, DeWitt Clinton. Clinton, Am I pronouncing that right? He was like the former governor of New York. He created the Erie Canal. They exhumed his body from upstate New York, I believe in Albany, and brought it to the cemetery to um, make it a celebrity hotspot. Mm. So because he was buried there, suddenly everyone wants to be buried there. I mean, you go through the list, FAO Shorts, which is a real yep. person, yep. Uh, the person who created the soda fountain, the sewing machine, the Wizard of Oz, literally, the guy who played the wizard is there. It's almost impossible to be buried there now because it's so coveted, that space. There are rules. You can't be buried there if you've been in jail for murder or mm. like killed someone because uh, they want to keep it at a certain uh, level of prestige. But yeah, Greenwood Cemetery in particular, I think, is the biggest attraction to uh, ghost hunters. Like it's huge and they have really cool events there sometimes. I went to this party there at midnight. It was called Behind the Veil. And they had opened up mausoleums. It was so cool. They opened up mausoleums that hadn't been uh, opened in hundreds of years. And they had like these ghost looking people singing opera from them. There were like, it it was like a 1920s party, the champagne. And, you know, I I had to go to the bathroom. So I had to walk through the graveyard in the nighttime by myself. And I have to say, it was very peaceful. It wasn't scary. Mm, And I kind of felt like a badass. Like if I can do this, I can do anything, you know, especially coming from somebody who's so scared of ghosts for so many years. But, you know, it's, um, it's a huge destination for visitors and, um, locals. And I'm a big fan. It's one of the biggest cemeteries. I think our biggest one in New York city is in Queens. Okay. That's where a lot of, I think Harry Houdini is buried there. That's the best graveyard to end with, in my opinion, because it kind of put Brooklyn on the map at the time. Sounds like a pretty special place. Yeah. You know, down in Mississippi, where I'm from, you know, we have a saying, which is that prestige and 
possessions and these sorts of things, you know, they're for the living. Cause ask yourself, yeah. have you ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul? Um, <laughs> it's so funny. I, I was in Savannah and they have hearse ghost tours mm. where they like take out the back and you can just ride around in a hearse and drink a Bloody Mary. It's really fun. Well, that sounds incredibly pleasant. Exactly. Right. Now, since you're from the South, do you know what Haint Blue is? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. See it all the time. Yeah, exactly. We uh, mentioned that on the tour. So for those of you not in the know, Haint is a term for spirit in um, the South. And it's this like Robin's egg blue color that people paint on their porch ceilings. Mm-hmm. We believe that it would trick ghosts into coming to not coming into their house by thinking it's either water, which they couldn't pass through or heaven which they would go up instead of inside the home. But it also prevents mosquitoes, which were was the main source of um, yellow fever. So it prevented death too. But yeah, you can see it throughout the South, the deep South everywhere today. And I believe it's still carried by Benjamin Moore, like 150 years later. I believe that. Right? Um, they... Uh, they have a number of historic shades um, that have dated to different periods yeah. in American history. And I, I can absolutely see that being the case. Now, I do need to ask you because of your experience walking through Greenwood Cemetery alone at midnight in mm-hmm. a very special frame of mind, maybe having sipped one of those glasses of champagne, you know. I was just say I was a little loosey-goosey. Yeah, well, you know, it uh, sounds like it was honestly, honestly earned, but you are a tour guide when you're not a researcher and many of these places are stops on on your tour of strange and paranormal and, and bizarre Brooklyn. I'm going to ask you a very obvious question here, Allison, which is that to your knowledge, have you ever had any sightings in Greenwood Cemetery in general in general at all in all of your years researching and investigating and kind of you know dipping your toe in these waters do you think you have ever witnessed anything which you cannot explain under normal circumstances okay so my go-to story with this is I spent okay so the Titanic sank on my birthday Mm -hmm. in April 15th um different year obviously Mm -hmm. but every year at the Stanley Hotel which is what the Shining Hotel is based on they have a replica first class last dinner of the Titanic. Mm. So I uh, dragged my friends along with me to experience this fun little dinner. By the way, the food in 1912 was disgusting. Gelatin had just <laughs> been yeah. and it was like these flavorless gelatin cubes and chicken broth. It was awful. Anyways, thank gosh for pizza. So uh, while we were there, because it's obviously notoriously haunted, we took a ghost tour And so we get into this room and the tour guide gives us dum-dum lollipops. And she, she tells us to put it on our, the palm of our hands straight up. And there are like these three ghost children who will run and knock them off our hands. Now, because it was my birthday, the tour guide specifically said for the ghost children to run to me. Like she announced it like ghost children run to Allison. It's her birthday. Mm-hmm. So she shuts off the lights and my friend recorded this so you can hear my screams. So I'm sitting there in the dark with the dum-dum. And after like a minute, I'm getting kind of bored because I was mm-hmm. like, this is stupid. I swear to you, it felt like a little child crawled into my lap. 
like, you know, the first second when something's happening, you don't process it. Mm -hmm. So you can hear me start to scream on the video because you can feel the pressure of somebody like literally crawling into your lap. So she immediately put the lights on. And I'm thinking like my friend was like playing a trick on me. When she puts the lights on, everyone's so far spread out. It would literally have been impossible. But I cannot explain my jacket being pulled and then feeling the weight of somebody crawl onto my lap. And it's not, again, it was like a little kid. So that's my go-to story. That's the closest thing I've ever gotten to a ghost only because, you know, when people say like, oh, I saw something from the corner of my eye or I felt Mm -hmm. this eerie feeling. It's like, I felt a physical presence. Mm. It made me more of a believer. I'd say I went from one of the 55% of the population who didn't believe in ghosts to (laughs) like a, I don't know, maybe I'm a 2% believer, 3%. Yeah. Cause I can't explain it and I'm not making this up. So, uh, yeah, that was my closest uh, ghostly encounter. Pretty spooky. It was kind of thrilling. It was more exciting than scary because I was like, finally, something. Uh, but yeah, the Stanley Hotel is, is pretty cool. Well, in the interest of uh, good science, of course, you know, we seek to uh, reach our conclusions by falsification, observation, and repetition. Uh, rumor has it you'll have another birthday. So, you know, maybe you need to go back and try this again and see if you obtain the same results. But uh, if you do, we want to be the very first to hear about it because that is quite a tale. It is. Allison. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a joy. And congratulations again on this very exciting book. Now, if listeners want to find out more about your work, where should they go? Well, you can go to our website. It's madamorbid.com. Uh, or you can find us on social media, which is NYC. Come take a tour. We are around for a spooky season. And you can see these places with your own eyeballs. And it's very exciting. The trolley itself is uh, decorated to look like a Victorian funeral parlor. We have these green velvet curtains, tufted red leather seats. We have a smoke machine. We also have uh, (laughs) videos with these Ken Burns style documentaries that we play, chandeliers. It's kind of like a Disney ride. So... um, You know, if you're into having a great time, you should book a tour and buy the book. And buy the book. Sounds like the total experience. Thank you. It is. Thank you, Allison. It has been a pleasure and we will talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Allison Huntington Chase, author of Bizarre Brooklyn, stories of the tragic, macabre, and ghostly, published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit your local independent bookstore, visit arcadiapublishing.com, or check out our new Crime Capsule show page at bookshop.org shop crime capsule. Join us next week as we head back across the country once more, traveling along the historic Route 66 all the way to its final resting place in California with author Brian Clune. Halloween comes early and often this year as our series on the paranormal in American history continues. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, 
audio engineer Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen offering shows in every genre, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew, but after reading police reports, became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.